Hi and welcome to the first episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. I am Som from Bangalore and I am Uday from London. Back in the day when we were roommates in Chennai and Bangalore, we would have many long debates and conversations on the country and the many forces making it what it is today. Right from politics to culture to its history. We used to have many long conversations over many cups of coffee. on the many happenings across the world all in all this is a well researched conversation on our worlds and its moving parts so we thought uh, we should continue the conversation over a podcast and involve you in some of our thoughts we intend to come back with an episode as often as we can the moment we find matters that require some pontification across the pond let's get going soon absolutely you there um also be warned that uh, our podcasting skills are well fairly nascent uh, and you will find segments with some background noise which can be attributed to the many venues at which the episode has been recorded so here we go so it's been a few days weeks that have passed uh, since balakot so much has emerged what were some of your initial thoughts i think when Balakot first happened there was a sense of inevitability about it uh mainly after uri but also the rhetoric after pulwama left nothing to the imagination it was uh, expected that within about 10 days a fortnight or 3 weeks there would be some action and the action would have to be escalatory as opposed to uri and uh, as i've talked about before ground assault was more or less smooth from the get go because uh, snow in the lower reaches of the himalayas plus the need to actually strike much deeper in pakistan deeper into pakistani territory this time so there was the sense of foreboding that something was about to happen so the whole rhetoric around the forces choosing the time and place of striking that was really moot because we knew pretty much that within 2 or 3 weeks something would happen and it the very fact that it's reactive also meant that it wouldn't be preemptive although the government tried to spin it that way my initial sense after pulwama was that something would happen and my initial sense after balakot was that it's fair game this is what the nation the military the polity they expected so you know i'd be quite interested to hear what you felt uh, being in the midst of it all uh, in india what the climate was like and uh, what the clamor for action actually felt like in indian homes yes so I think what was um, and what what kind of worries a lot of us um, sitting here after Pulwama was that you know for the first week it was obviously the shock of it um, you know in the in, in the time of the Modi government there have been so many um, attacks on military establishments and that seems to have become the norm right and uh, a lot of the public seems very insulated because. Uh, if you remember all the way up to 2008, 2009, there were attacks on the civilian population, right? And I think at some uh, level, 
with that changing um the entire conversations that happened in living rooms has also changed so post pulwama it was it was a shock because um i think with puri you know when it happened in the bikki camp it felt like an attack on the army uh, this happening on the streets um of kashmir felt uh, a lot more real and i think it kind of evoked a lot more emotion at least from what i saw from you know when kali uh, all over um i think what's scary like i was mentioning in the beginning is the fact that there is this inevitability that there needs to be an escalation um that was something that we want you to uh, i think the last time we saw something like that was you know when oparakram happened in the early 2000 um it felt like there was an attack on uh, the republic and therefore a reaction of that kind was justified uh, but today uh, while it is a you know brave young india you know all the rhetoric that has been going around um i think a lot of us are concerned that uh, half measures are being taken we're not thinking things through um and which is why after pulwama the days that uh, you know soon after the attack what we saw was a lot of conversation on the world stage uh, you know pushing diplomacy and uh, some of our strong relations with neighbors and it felt like we had gotten to a place where we were to lead us and i think that was very important and uh, in typical modi government style i think at some level even what happened with uri uh, i mean after uri was that um, in citizens had stopped thinking about a potential attack and we thought that this was what will be our reaction and then you know we woke up uh, that morning and heard the news and and i think this, the the strange part was that we heard the news first from the pakistani side um, so i think there was a lot of confusion and obviously uh, with whatsapp becoming the first source of news nowadays uh, there was a lot of conjecture on what was happening and i think that entire day uh, a lot of us were just really not focusing on our daily lives and uh it, it just felt like you know war was going to break out and so many of us so Indians were thought not happen in Kargil so it was a tense day um and just a small side note you know before we kind of dive deeper into uh the impact of the attack and what happened post that um was that uh you know there's this sense of insensitivity that I feel has snuck in uh I had a lot of people around me uh constantly It felt like they were betting against what was going to happen next. Seems like with all this information that is available today, uh, with all that we are allowed to read and understand about how the armed forces work, um, there were people constantly gaming the situation, trying to figure out and making declarations themselves of what will happen next. I think that was the second scariest part for me of uh, the entire armed forces fight. One, the inevitability of it. And second, uh, just how everyone felt was uh, this bold decision, yes, but also like it was some sort of a game, uh, you know, that hey, next move I can get before you, but I have this piece of information from uh, some random source, and uh, I think that this is the beginning of a of a scary time where you bring this inevitability from the government along with people constantly. Trying to predict what's going to happen next. Um, so anyway, I mean, from there, let's kind of go to what happened. After. Yeah, what happened, and uh, you know, one maybe if I could add a third point to that, it would be that 
as the militants over the rule of BJP and uh, over the rule of BJP since 2014, most of their targets have actually been military. They haven't been civilian. So what this has done is for the rest of India, the Indian mainland, the heartland, attitudes have hardened because the forces are being attacked. It's not just civilians. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, it's actually polarized Kashmir way more because this generation now feels like they're fighting the righteous war. They're fighting an occupying army as opposed to bombing civilians or, you know, bombing just Lal Chowk or harassing tourists near Dal Lake. It has actually morphed into a fight against occupational, occupying forces. And I think that has lent this struggle a lot more legitimacy in the eyes of the uh, Kashmiri citizen. And I think that is very worrying. And that is something that the BJP government is absolutely blind to. They, while they're very happy to ratchet up the rhetoric uh, over Kashmir and the rest of the country, Kashmir has ended up becoming cannon fodder to gain votes in the rest of the country. But Kashmir, I think, is as alienated as it has ever been since 1989. Right. And, and, I, and I feel that uh, a lot of us don't see it that way, you know, and, and that's kind of uh, unfortunate, right? I think uh, the government has been successful in kind of blazing over what uh, the Kashmiris are feeling and why this... Uh, battle has kind of turned towards the forces, uh, right? And I think you've you've really, I mean, you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in in saying that it's really emboldened the youth in Kashmir, right? A lot of them who are being, uh, you know, told uh, about the atrocities, and obviously we're seeing it firsthand uh, of uh, the Indian army out there. Uh, but I think what's happening is that because the entire narrative is is changing towards. Um, young Kashmiris now attacking the establishment uh, versus, you know, Pakistani-funded terrorists attacking civilians across the country. Uh, a lot of people in the rest of India, and uh, as you know, I'm in the south of India, so I'm so much more further away from um, a lot of the hardline kind of conversation against uh, the Kashmiris fundamentalists out there and the Pakistani-funded terrorism. Um, the problem is that no one here seeing it that way, right? It just seems like um, there are obviously the Modi supporters who are seeing this as uh, a strong man uh, getting his way. And then there are the, the anti-Modi supporters, which unfortunately is all that we are dividing into today, uh, who are uh, seeing this as... Uh, um, they're not seeing it as fair play. They're seeing it as him uh, drumming up uh, electoral votes uh, through some of these moves. Um, but we're completely forgetting... Uh, what we're really, uh, you know, distressing in, in here and how we're making it so much harder out there. Um, yeah. Today, you have written uh, on your... Uh, you've always uh, kind of chronicled some of those relationships and history uh, of the separatist movement um, in Kashmir. You know, so before we kind of get into what Pakistan's response was, maybe if we can just kind of touch upon um, why the lack of involvement of the Loki... Uh, Kashmiri uh, parties, I mean, um, some from uh, some, uh, Dula to, uh, uh, you know, the, the PDP government uh, that was uh, kind of taken away from the uh, Kashmiri people 
uh, how how have some of these moves by the bjp uh, in the last uh, two to three years really affected the morale of people out there and how do you see this playing out irrespective of a bjp government coming back in power or you know coming back in power so like you said uh, you know the bjp at least before it came into power hopes in the valley were very high and the valley being the heartland the heartbeat of the uh, whole kashmir region you know jammu is obviously uh, appended to the valley but it's the valley which dictates uh, the tempo of the politics in the whole of the state and you know hopes were really very high as of uh, 2014 even before the even before bjp actually made an appearance at the state level because the valley is the no great friends of the congress and that's abundantly clear i mean nehru uh, jailed sheikh abdullah and Ra- indira gandhi jailed sheikh abdullah rajiv gandhi and indira gandhi were both never very amenable to farooq abdullah so and actually the biggest olive branch that was uh, you know handed out or handed out to the kashmiri people was by atal bihari vajpayee in nda 1 so the hopes were very so the hopes were very high when the bjp came into power and uh, but they've continually just frittered away that advantage by a very bombastic rhetoric they never actually wanted to reconcile force uh, reconcile uh, various warring uh, parties on the ground uh, i think when they came into power there was no real kashmir strategy apart from giving the forces uh, a freer rein and back then a lot of commentators including me uh, we saw it as a positive because the army we thought was always dealing with the separatists with the terrorists with one hand tied behind their backs and now you know the sort of leashes holding back the army were off and they could at least conduct their uh, cict operations counter insurgency and counter terrorism operations uh, with uh, you know with essentially not fearing about the repercussions and initially it was so but i think the bloody summer of 2016 when buran wani was gunned down i think that changed the whole dynamic and the disproportionate response to protests uh, I'm not going so far as to say the protests were peaceful. They were not, but the response of the state was still disproportionate. And I think we just haven't recovered from that because the solution has always been military. BJP had a stake in the state government. They chose to withdraw that support. And honestly, none of the political parties uh, from the valley, the PDP or the National Congress or even the Hurriyat, they really have no legitimacy left in the valley. because buran wani epitomized the that legitimacy for the younger generation so actually none of these political parties really seem to matter and governor's rule is just emblematic of this uh, whole slide into a solution fostered upon them from new delhi so i think we lost a great opportunity with uh, the bjp coming into power and i think it's honestly reflect it reflects and it's emblematic of narendra modi's approach pretty much and everywhere else he's uh, alienated allies in maharashtra he's alienated allies in andhra pradesh and uh, he's caused uh, really long uh, 
political rivals to run into each other's arms. So I think he's done nothing new in Kashmir, but the hopes were really very high. Right. So now with that background, uh, let's kind of go to the next day, right? I mean, um, yeah. after the attack in Balakot, uh, you know, just I think everyone out here in India, uh, there was a celebratory move. I mean, it, it was fairly evident uh, after the surgical strikes uh, uh, that, that happened post the Uri attack. Um, there was this uh, celebratory kind of tone that was running across all media. I think that's the one time I saw all media outlets in India unite in congratulating uh, the government, the Indian Air Force, uh, the decision making and uh, just the overall execution of what seemed to be still a operation that very few of us understood. Um, you know, there are obviously uh, left of center and uh, anti-Modi uh, press outlets. Uh, you know, right from the Quint, uh, you know, to the wire, to um, even Shekhar Gupta, who's obviously still fairly balanced, but uh, is open in criticizing Modi, you know, whenever he has been wrong or the BJP government has been wrong. And all of them came out in um, universal kind of praise for the uh, response. Um, now, what followed after that, um, I think if you can just kind of uh, break it down and uh, you know make us understand, but I think at this at this point in time, uh, on that day, that was the general mood across uh, everyone I was talking to, and you know the media was was united. The opposition was united. Uh, all, everyone in the opposition came out as they always do for such responses, congratulating the the, the air force and congratulating the decision making behind it. Um, but what really went down um, that day? Uh, I think a what was most important was that uh, you know even the response to Uri and the response to Pulwama were both intelligence-led operations. Uh, I think that is something which has been uh, missing in India's past. Uh, they were led by the NSA Ajit Doval. And I think that was a radical departure from uh, how India responded to uh, terror attacks or responded to threats in the previous decade, which was always being led at the command level or even at the divisional level. Uh, you know, we did have uh, attacks across the POK. And we did have a sort of aerial surgical strikes, again led by, uh, you know, the Mirage aeroplanes in 2002. But they were always led by local commanders in Kashmir. So I think that the departure from local commanders actually calling the shots to making it a New Delhi intelligence and NSA-led operation was uh, the most satisfying uh, aspect of both these responses. And I think the time uh, that India chose, the early hours of uh, you know, 28th, 27th, 28th February, uh, I think it was a window which uh, opened when the AWAC radars of uh, the Pakistani Army and the Pakistani Air Force would find it hard to detect. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of conjecture as to... Uh, the fact that these uh, planes actually flew in from uh, Bhopal and Gwalior and not actually the air bases closer to the border. But let's leave that aside too. Uh, let's put that aside uh, for now. The actual strikes 
I think were very successful. We simply have to take the Air Force's word for it. And I don't think, I think debating the actual number of casualties uh, misses the whole point. It really doesn't matter whether they were 10 people, 15 people, or like some of the exaggerated claims, 250 people being present in uh, Balakot. What actually mattered was the symbolic uh, aspect of this strike. The fact that Balakot wasn't merely in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, but in Pakistan proper. The fact that Balakot has been the sort of seat of pan-Islamic insurgency for more than a century and a half, uh, that was that added to the symbolism. And the fact that uh, Masood Azhar's uh, son-in-law was present there, uh, I think that completed the trilogy of symbolism which the intelligence services and the armed forces were actually going for. The fact that you can't verify the uh, casualties on the ground I think it's a moot point. Uh, of course, you can't verify. Uh, it wasn't a daylight attack in Lahore or Karachi or in Islamabad. So I think it was a very successful strike. Uh, the fact that there were no reports that the Indian Air Force jets were chased away by Pakistani uh, jets. I think that was another very uh, gratifying and uh, satisfying aspect of this attack. And... Uh, like we discussed, uh, I think how India felt a sense of foreboding. I think it was the same for Pakistan once uh, India dropped their munitions on uh, Balakot. They pretty much knew that uh, the Pakistani Air Force will respond. And uh, I think what we felt on this side of the border, uh, we actually had to wait 13 days uh, for it, the uh, symbolic length of uh, you know, the Hindu rituals for the deceased. I think uh, the Pakistanis felt uh, similar angst uh, in the hours that followed Balakot. And and would you believe that their reaction was also meant uh, in, in creating some kind of a uh, you know symbolic outreach uh, to their people, or was it really to the military establishment out there? Like, uh, what, what was the purpose of? Uh, their attack and, and I think uh, the fact that it happened the very next day so yeah I think so I would say they were twofold the fact that uh, they responded so quickly within 24 hours I think was obviously meant to bolster the image of the government but uh, much more than that to bolster the image of the Pakistani armed forces uh, so I think just like Indian polity back themselves into a corner. In this instance, the Pakistani military has actually done that ever since the creation of the state of Pakistan. Uh, so the Pakistani people expected a response and the Pakistani Air Force simply had to respond to restore uh, faith that faith in the Pakistani armed forces that they could respond at the time and place of their choosing. And I think the time of their choosing was very symbolic. It was a daylight raid. They did not do it under the cover of darkness like the Indian Air Force did. They actually came into Indian Kashmir, Kashmir proper. And uh, it was a daylight attack. And I think what the Indian response, uh, because of the nature of the fact that it was uh, the Pakistani response took less than 24 hours, 
the indian response ended up being modeled in srinagar as opposed to delhi and the success of both uh, balakot and the uri revenge was the fact that it was modeled in new delhi so i'd say pakistan definitely succeeded and even though indian jets uh, were scrambled and now the news reports coming in that you know the mig 21s were actually the last line of defense they were the last jets to be scrambled from uh, anantnag and srinagar the actual response was led by uh, su30s and uh, as these things come to light we realized that the indian air force was well prepared and uh, what we do tend to forget also is that pakistan wasn't very far off in uh, actually striking fear into indian hearts one of their munitions landed in the noshera brigade headquarters and uh, we have glossed over the fact that it was a very very close call it wasn't open fields it wasn't abandoned villages one of the munitions actually landed in a brigade headquarter premises so as uh, citizens i think i mean just to kind of uh, wrap up Uh, this specific uh, part of the podcast. What should we uh, kind of look forward to now in this entire dynamic between uh, India and Pakistan? Because uh, Pakistan has at least its people convinced, uh, and maybe certain sections and uh, of the uh, UN Security Council. i think more specifically one section of the un security council yeah. uh convinced on um, the fact that they are not really behind these attacks they are not really uh the ones subsidizing uh, uh, these uh, uh actions but uh if this is going to be the tone and uh, obviously assuming that the bjp government comes back into power um is how how do we uh, as citizens of this country um prepare ourselves for uh, future such escalations because this time we saw uh, an escalation from both sides um and i personally have a feeling that it's not always going to um, end peacefully um, end in a sort of uh, mutual stalemate um what do you see i mean the kind of crystal ball gazing out there that you thought on this uh I think we as citizens of India definitely have to be uh, prepared for more such escalations. Uh it is only inevitable that there will be more terrorist strikes and uh if we can always safely assume that there will be a handful of uh, terrorist strikes on uh, Indian army camps across the Kashmir valley especially South Kashmir but I think as citizens of you know the country ranging from kashmir to kanyakumari and uh, you know the run of kutch to kohima i think what we have to be prepared for is that any time any any sort of escalation and especially any sort of attack uh, any sort of mass attack on the forces it will be met with an even more escalatory response by india i think that game plan is more or less set and you can sort of see the rationale uh, uh behind the government's actions because the pakistani nuclear bluff is uh, the most enduring bluff that there has been since uh, the early 1980s and even if you see imran khan's uh, interviews in the aftermath of uh, 
Pulwama in the aftermath of Balcourt and even as uh, late as just a week ago, he very quickly moves to a point of view that, you know, we were very close to... Uh, he doesn't say we, uh, India and Pakistan were very close to an all-out war, but he keeps alluding to the fact that we're two nuclear-armed neighbours and, uh, you know, things can pretty much go anywhere. And I would actually put that down as a Pakistani bluff. And the Indian polity, I think, will continue to question the validity of that hypothesis that they, they will actually escalate it to nuclear weapons. So I think we as Indians should be prepared for further escalations. I think irrespective of which government comes into power, there will be more uh, Indian provocations. And I think Pakistan's response will also ratchet up. Uh, but I definitely think they will stop uh, it will be sub-nuclear. They will stop at the nuclear threshold. And even though it's really very ill-defined, the Pakistani uh, nuclear escalatory radar, I do not think it will turn nuclear, but I think we will have many more scary moments uh, going ahead because Kashmir continues to be in, under governor's rule. And uh, like Pulwama, there might be attacks carried out by local youth you can't really stop that, uh, even with your uh, CICT grade, by empowering the Indian Army, by empowering the uh, border security force. You're really not going to stop uh, internal Kashmiri threats. So I think we should be prepared for you know, more nervous moments, more uh, worrisome moments, uh, because India will continue to retaliate in the same way. Right, so I have a feeling that uh, we are going to come back to this topic uh, on this podcast uh, over the next few months, uh, especially with the elections coming up, uh, especially with uh, just how much uh, the, the entire escalation and uh, all the conversation around the attack uh, maybe even helped the Modi government in, uh, uh, in the elections. Uh, I, I think we will uh, uh, come back to this and uh, we will track this entire piece closely. Uh, so, uh, let's move on to uh, the next segment. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. And uh, there, so moving on to the next uh, segment of the podcast today, um, I thought maybe we could uh, discuss uh, the state of uh, movies in India today. Uh, maybe with a specific tilt towards... Uh, some of the more patriotic-minded movies that have been coming out um, mm. in the last few months. Obviously, a lot of it has been happening. Um, what has kind of stuck out for you? What has been interesting? What has been uh, difficult to watch? And just what do you feel is happening right now? Why, why are so many of these movies coming out? Uh, I think so. Uh, honestly, the number of movies, the number of patriotic movies which have... Uh, come out I think over the past 12 to 18 months I think it's mind-boggling and uh, the only one I took made the effort to go and watch was Uri for obvious reasons uh, given the great love for the army and uh, actually uh, how very well made uh, the movie was and uh, the trailer was a 
great lure to actually uh, you know also get in the masses not just an audience who've grown up uh, within army families and really like to see most of the things done right in the movie but uh, at the other end of the spectrum within patriotic movies there exist movies like uh, kesari there exist movies uh, like manikarnika thugs of hindustan i would even club uh, padmavat in this because it deals with a very emotive uh, issue and especially for people in rajasthan it ended up being their nationalist movie and uh, of course the many reasons why they wanted it banned but the divide between uh, the low budget movies the movies by less heralded directors like uri going further back uh, uh, movies like airlift baby uh they seem to be doing a much better job than uh, movies than the big budget movies like manikarnika the padmavats of the world and that divide is honestly quite stark and if you uh, just happen to go through the youtube comment section which is the most vitriolic place on the internet uh the comments uh, they really pan uh, these uh, professional uh, movie reviewers for not liking movies like uh, manikarnika and thugs of hindustan the typical quote being uh, you know if something similar was being made uh, over in hollywood by steven spielberg or martin scorsese you would lap it up but just because it's being made by indians uh, you seem to be unable to accept it but i think the fact that indians are exposed to these western movies actually makes the acceptability of a manikarnika or uh, even a kesari it's a lot less palatable to, i think to the indian public honestly i don't see any reason why a poorly made movie irrespective of the fact whether it's patriotic or not why it really needs to garner any more attention than uh, a poorly made movie at the end of the day it's just a bad movie and it's not entertaining and that's the reason why uri was uh, so successful obviously they hit the right uh, emotive notes the timing of the movie was impeccable it was uh, you know and i think it got a sort of second wave after balakot as well but uh, movies like kesari there is no attempt to spin a narrative there's no attempt to show the gritty nature of war i mean kesari was premised on the whole fact that this was this was a battle the battle of saragadi which predates uh, you know the machine gun era the battle tanks era but yet there was next to no attempt to actually bring out the suffering the grit and the uh, hand to hand combat that uh, you know 19th century and early 20th century uh, was actually entailed so i think on that account these uh, movies haven't done a good job at all but a very special shout out to a movie which i think very few of us have actually watched is madras cafe i think it was made very well rooted in fact and i think that is what differentiates uh, madras cafe from all the other patriotic movies so called patriotic movies or at least movies which uh, center or hinge around uh, foreign policy or defense i think that movie stood out uh, head and shoulders above the rest because uh, they got the small details right uh, the narrative was right and i think it's uh, the best movie that john abraham has touched in his life as a director <laughs> or an actor
yeah yeah actually um and the sad, the sad part about uh, what you just mentioned is obviously so many more people watched uh, kesri and manikarnika and uh, i think a lot of these creators are really trapped uh, by the fact that they need to make a a movie that can truly sell you know like madras cafe obviously starts on a fairly uh, you know depressing note it ends on a fairly downbeat note but is so rooted in uh, everything that happened uh, during that conflict but i just want to understand uh, they're kind of going back to uh, you know like you mentioned the last 12 to 18 months of the movies that have been coming out and some of these reactions right and now kind of going back and finding a thread to the balakot conversation and just the general chest thumping that was happening uh, across the country uh, is is it really this because i mean we've been seeing patriotic movies for quite some time you know and a lot of people have been spending a lot of time trying to tell us that listen don't don't blame everything on the modi government um, but there is something in this pr machine uh, that has managed to spread itself even into bollywood even into the uh, minds of uh, cinema goers uh, these youtube comments uh, this chest thumping uh, after watching a film um, is this maybe good in some way for us that you know there's this pride coming in there is um, awareness coming in of these uh, these stories uh, they can be better but that maybe it's it's good that we are at least being exposed to it or is it just worrying the way we seem to lap up anything and then uh, make it a badge of honor for the country uh i think it for me personally it is slightly worrying because uh i would just say if we want to educate ourselves on our history you should just head to a library or just talk to someone who's 80 years old or 85 years old uh but just the fact that i think this generation and us included we don't really want to do that and for most most of the audience in most of the country uh something like a battle of battle of saragadi outside of punjab i think no one knew it no one knew about it so the fact that this movie actually brings out this battle for the rest of the country and the rest of the world i think is important but at the same time the fact that it's being made as a movie and not a documentary i think it should be entertaining it has to be better made i don't know the nuances the intricacies of filmmaking but i don't think it should just pander to a chest thumping audience and i think like you pointed out it's just i think bjp's attempt either you know subtly overtly or covertly just sort of rewriting and rebranding uh, india's history as a martial history you know which is why you have uh, manikarnika in open defiance of uh, you know the paramountsi which the lapse of paramountsi but i really don't think these are the movies we need uh, it could be a really well made movie like uh, the one on the cuban missile crisis uh, 13 days i think that was a spectacular movie shows the drama within which happens uh, in seven race course shows the drama which happens uh, you know in lok sabha or in state assemblies or shows the drama which happens in the army high command it doesn't necessarily have to be it doesn't need to have the sort of mass appeal to educate the people i think people just go in droves just because everyone else around them is 
and i think if they stand up and say that this is uh, you know what this was a really badly made movie on a really good subject i i think you just can't say that anymore even amongst friends so i think it's slightly disturbing for me personally but for the uh, 60% of india's population which is whatever below 25 below 30 i think this is the only way they'll ever bother to educate themselves about these issues yeah that's yeah that's so true because uh, you know when you're witness to some of the you know half baked conversations um, and i feel that you know after watching movies like this the best thing is like you said to just go and uh, read up and understand how much of it was really true yeah. because the other problem is uh, in the in the process of uh, making things entertaining uh, there's always this disclaimer at the beginning of these movies saying that it's based on true facts uh, yeah. which is what you'll which is what you'll never find in in you know a hollywood movie um, where they will base it on facts and that's about it uh, and they still manage to make the screenplay interesting enough uh, but let uh, you know the other the other movie that um, i think you kind of missed out which uh, requires mention but not notable mention uh was uh, paltan and uh, again that was jp datta uh, bringing back his uh, uh fairly archaic uh, storytelling techniques to today's time and you would think that uh, for a man who gave us border which whatever said and done back then was you know a great movie i still think uh, it, it is something that i would love to watch and uh, it it evokes all the right sentiments it stays fairly true to the uh, facts of uh, the battle uh but paltan was again just so much of um time spent on the family back home and it's just sad that in today's time um where things are uh, screenplays are becoming slicker if not anything else and that's what uri proved um guys like jp datta still uh, you know sticking to old storytelling techniques uh, let's not forget uh, the narendra modi movie which uh, i think we all are uh, thankful we don't need to analyze because none of us have gotten to see it till now so so i think uh, that is one uh, uh, great thing that uh, we might be able to analyze uh, in a few months time uh, but odai oh, just quickly yeah. kind of um, going back a few years i mean you, you've grown up as an army kid i i've been an army kid um, we obviously have this uh, a fascination and respect and love for the army um what about a movie like lakshya right i mean i i remember both of us watching it countless number of times what what did they get right and why aren't we making movies like that anymore i think they uh, like faranakar said you know everything about the movie was right and when he was asked uh, what's the one thing that you would change about the movie and he said the audience uh the fact that it was actually a flop was just yeah. shocking to me but it has aged splendidly well and that's much more than what you can say for uh, most of these other movies i think uri will age very well because of the fact that uh, you know it's packed with action they got their facts right and it i just spoke about this uh, moment in time in india or especially our Uh, armed forces where they sort of came to age uh, for a generation of uh, kids and that was lucky for us when it came out uh, in early 2001 uh, kids who grew up in the uh, shadow of the kargil war saw their fathers uh, 
shipped off to Kashmir or just be in Kashmir for uh, more than three-fourths of their uh, three-decade-long career in the army. What it really got right was, uh, A, it was a human story. Uh, it focused on a really lost boy who everyone could relate to. And then it sort of switched gears and moved to a track where this young boy really comes of age, not at the Indian Military Academy, but he really comes of age actually in Kargil. I think that's what the movie uh, portrayed very well. Even though the runtime, I think, would not would ensure that it's not successful even today, I think it's aged really well. And that is the one aspect that they got really spot on. They had a very compelling story to tell. And that's much more than what you can say for all these movies which have come out since, who've had very good background material, who have very good backdrops to tell their story, but they just dilute it. Like you said, J.P. Dutta with using crutches which are uh, two or three decades old, movies which would have been made in the 1960s. He's still sort of churning out these movies, uh, patriotic movies, and we're just expected to like them because they talk about the Indian army. I don't think movie going works like that. Yeah, and I really hope we uh, stop seeing such devices being used. And, you know, I think uh, Lakshya, the most interesting part about it was uh, the fact that uh, Javed Akhtar wrote the script and and wrote it a few years before it was made. Um, and it doesn't really need, you know, a young writer, uh, somebody who uh, understands the audience of today uh, to be able to write something meaningful. Um, I think I think this is this is going to be an uh, interesting year going ahead. Um, I'm hoping that we get to see uh, more cinema in this space. You mentioned uh, Baby. Uh, you That was one of an airlift also. Again, movies that I think managed to create interest across... Uh, groups of people but was still fairly well done well made well thought out so you know really hope to see uh, more of that in the year uh, year coming um any other movie that you know very quickly before we wrap up this segment any other movie from uh, the I, last 5 10 years that comes to mind which you thought was well done uh, i think apart from madras cafe another movie with uh, you know, another actor mannequin uh, like John Abraham, <laughs> Arjun Rampal, which uh, I really liked was D-Day. And of course, it had, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, excessive melodrama. And of course, uh, you know, an undercover agent, he just ends up with a family and yeah. just, you know, rears them for 10 years before having to ditch them. And But I think they got many aspects really spot on. The fact that... Uh, the uh, Indian undercover, you know, the Raw Intelligence Unit X essentially got to know of uh, the Kahuta nuclear plant uh, by posing as barbers near the nuclear plant. I think, uh, again, the fact that they had a story to tell made it really interesting. It wasn't just about uh, the fact that it was a precision planned mission. It was, you know, just disparate individuals, but all serving India who are stuck in the middle of a literal shitstorm, the fact that their first capture mission goes wrong, uh, the fact that they have to regroup and still get him uh, on Indian soil. I think it was a very well-made movie, but whoever I say this to, they have shot me down because they just simply, they just didn't think the movie was entertaining. Maybe it's just something in it that appealed to me. What do you think about uh, D-Day? Because I really liked it. 
yeah i really enjoyed the movie i thought uh, for one um, arjun rampal actually managed to uh, hold my attention which itself was quite a feat <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah i think uh, even i was quite surprised with people's reactions because um, i think indian intelligence and you know undercover agents and the entire uh, aura around the raw uh, is is something that has not really been uh, i mean scriptwriters directors have not really spent time on this uh, and i felt like dd at some level without any gadgetry without any master plan uh, was just simple at 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 some level and at the same time uh, uh, had a very powerful story i just felt that maybe what was missing is that uh, at that point in time in india there was really no large conversation around dauds right and yeah. uh, and and maybe that's what uh, escaped people right like uri managed to hit a, a chord just for its timing um, a, a lot of these movies managed to get timing uh, really bang on right like i think yeah. even madras cafe not doing that well that might have been one of the reasons uh, lakshya happening so many years after the kargil war and india being in a fairly decent state of peace um i i think that's that's what's actually kind of unfortunate also that uh, that's what uh, script writers and directors might have to think about in the future but i truly enjoyed the movie and i thought uh, uh, i i couldn't i couldn't see rishi kapoor in any other movie after that for quite some time because i just <laughs> would wake up hating him and uh, i think there were some great performances there but yeah uh, and i, th- I think, I think we- before we uh, sort of receive hate for this uh, we must correct uh, research and analysis wing to r and a w and not raw so yes. just before yes. we people jump on our uh, throats and just tell us we don't know what we're talking about yes yes my apologies to <laughs> any undercover agent who might be listening to this <laughs> but but that's that's true and and i think we should uh, you know do a segment uh, on the research and analysis wing uh, sometime soon uh, from yeah. uh, some of the stuff that you written on your blog yeah. uh, but um, Uh, we'll move on to the next segment but we will surely uh, come back to conversations around uh, movies especially on these themes uh, in the future absolutely so let's then move on to talking about uh, you know not really an issue and keeps in uh, line with uh, the sort of infotainment space that we're looking at I've just noticed of late that uh, my YouTube seems to be overpopulated with content from Scoop Whoop and I've given them a shot I've seen a few episodes of these so-called unscripted episodes and one of them has uh, you know everyone's every liberal and secular person in India's favorite MP Asaduddin Owaisi and uh, they really seem to be either doing something right or they seem to be making a connection but what is uh, what i really find surprising is that they seem to be dominant for a very long time and now they've suddenly started coming out with this uh, bold and irreverent content so some do you have any idea about you know what's happening what's making scoop whoop take internally and why people seem to like it so much now yeah so um, i i I have to confess similar uh, youtube attack happened uh, to my feed also <laughs> where suddenly uh, i mean other than just kupup there was just a whole uh, group of youtube channels and uh, influencers who popped up who uh, i mean you you can't say uh, left leaning or left or center anymore i think it's just as simple as um, 
anti modi or exposing uh, a certain side of this bjp government um, a whole bunch of these channels popped up but uh, you know a little bit about scoopop from you know time um, i've spent kind of working uh, with them uh, in my you know previous uh, uh, job i think um, we all know what scoopop kind of represented at one point in time um, it was this um, office Uh, content which you know people would read after lunch uh, it would be you know full of memes there would be these fairly mindless stories and listicles and anything that ticked on the internet uh, anything that buzzfeed was doing pretty much mm-hmm. uh, you know the quizzes and um, all of that it was pretty much india's buzzfeed um, until buzzfeed got serious right and and that happened <laughs> yeah. some years ago uh, where um, you you started seeing these amazing long form articles uh, great journalistic stuff investigative journalistic stuff coming out of buzzfeed uh, it was also the time the world was waking up to vice uh, all across uh, uh, the globe uh, somewhere around that time i remember talking to um, the the team at scoop hope as to what the future um, had uh, for them and they were talking about wanting to be the vice of india uh, pretty much around the same time vice was figuring out how to get into india okay you know so and and my first question was that listen no one's going to take you seriously right so how how are you guys going to be taken seriously that's what you want to uh, do and um, they didn't have answers but it felt like they had a plan and i think what's happened and it's it's kind of hit me suddenly but clearly a lot of this content uh, that we see today has been uh, in the works for nearly a year year and a half uh there has been uh, besides the unscripted series uh, going back uh, uh, about a year or so there have been uh, documentaries on uh, you know the real face of the demonetization where you know they got a lot of uh, people to really talk about how um black money uh, kind of reentered the entire market so it was a fairly explosive uh, documentary but fairly well done also at the same time so i understand why they were trying to uh, position themselves as the vice of india um, there was uh, another fairly you know gut wrenching documentary on the uh, sewage cleaners um, which we find in a lot of the cities of india uh, so from there they've they, they started taking a turn towards uh, exposing a lot of what the bjp had become in the last couple of years or at least the leadership had become in the last couple of years uh, which led to uh, um, you know some of the scoopo unscripted uh, videos uh, of which one of my favorites is uh, where sandeesh bhatia who's pretty much the face of scoopo unscripted and i think one of the funniest political commentators we have can totally have his own late night show and i hope he does sometime um he enters a bjp national convention uh, pretty much undercover and uh, even though he kind of gets exposed somewhere in between uh but it's it's a hilarious video and at the same time quite the eye opener um yeah. i think uh, kind of a lot of inspiration taken from uh, the daily show uh, yeah. and a lot of the correspondents of the daily show and how they covered uh, uh, the entire uh, elections with uh, with trump and uh, even post uh, the elections you know guys like jordan klepper and uh, hasan minaj before he went on to make his own uh, you know netflix show yeah. uh, all these guys kind of um, achieved a lot of their uh, fame through uh, covering uh, trump and the republican uh, republicans and you know the people who voted for them uh, i feel scoopop have kind of hit one of those 
fairly uh, uh, you know well placed groundswell for themselves uh, which is what's happening with the bjp what's happening with public opinion for and against it uh, and that led to a whole set of uh, these videos i think it's uh, it's fairly well done stuff i think it appeals to a whole uh, group of people people who are well informed uh, people who are who want to be informed uh, people who don't give a damn uh, but will still get informed by the end of it i think that's the beauty of the content um the uh, ovc uh, episode that you mentioned is part of this whole off the record series yeah. where they're talking to politicians and again sandeep bhatia and his uh, now trademark style fairly reverent uh, uh, you know kind of way of approaching these conversations uh, right from his conversation with milan diora to uh, ovc uh, there's this thread that kind of runs where he's trying to humanize a lot of these uh, uh politicians and a lot of their opinions about uh, how they feel things are being run today so i think uh it's interesting i'm i'm really going to be i'm i'll subscribe to all their channels um and i and i would suggest everyone does because it's a great entry point into the conversation uh, around a lot of things i mean they they are even talking about how the the elections work there is a great series on uh, just the constitution itself and the elections uh specifics around the elections like what is the vv pat can um uh, one candidate stand from uh, you know two different constituencies uh, uh, as we see with uh, rahul gandhi and modi and their own insecurities around it but <laughs> uh, but but um, i i think i think it's good i think it's good for uh, content in this country and uh, and i think the most surprising part is that scoopop have managed to crack this someone who two years Two to three years ago, uh, a lot of people laughed off, saying they would never be able to do this. Uh, but yeah, kudos to the team out there. That's really uh, interesting. So you know, the last bit of what you said actually uh, takes away a bit from the question I was going to ask, but also sort of lends itself uh, to the question I was going to ask. That they have this, uh, you know, obviously the documentaries. Uh, that they these short documentaries that they seem to make they're really hard hitting and that's really yes. nice to watch uh but from the uh, you know the unscripted uh, series that they have uh mm. my biggest fear is that uh, you know just because the wider or the liberal media now sees that they have to counter bjp by any and all means possible do you think uh, you know bhatia actually ends up asking any tough questions of his guests of course he humanizes them but is it uh, any different to how say akshay kumar humanizes narendra modi by you know <laughs> just going to seven race course and just having uh, a chat over god knows what i don't know the uh, how, how is it uh, different is it just because say oasi is eating mutton biryani does that make it uh, necessarily irreverent does it ensure that the hard questions that we need to ask all our politicians are they being asked uh, do you think uh, bhatia does a good job of that um i think um, one correction i think bhatia humanized these politicians akshay kumar is angelized modi for the <laughs> or i don't know what the word is but yeah, yeah probably so, canonized him yeah he's saint him, modi yeah. now yeah yeah it's it's on another level but um, i think what i mean what i came away feeling after watching videos was uh, he approaches some of those conversations he he does ask them 
uh, questions that not necessarily makes them feel uncomfortable, but it's fairly clear they're not ready to answer some of those questions in full. Mm-hmm. But I think what's important is that Sandeesh Bhatia is not really um, a voice for, you know, political understanding of any kind. He's, he's not someone known for, um, you know, maybe studying, understanding policy, having an opinion on it. Uh, he's really someone who's creating this platform for this kind of a conversation. You know, another great example is Kunal Kamra, right? Yeah. And uh, some of the interviews that he has been doing. Absolutely. Uh, he's, yeah. yeah, you know, even, even there, I feel like he's not asking the tough questions, but by just allowing, uh, you know, his guests to speak, uh, which, you know, on certain news channels, you're not allowed to. Uh, yeah. He's, he's uh, in essence, uh, creating a space where uh, a lot of these uh, politicians or, you know, policymakers are actually just getting to talk about things that are on their mind. And uh, uh, if you look at it as two sides of a coin, uh, on one side, if you look at the uh, BJP leadership in the last uh, couple of years, I mean, obviously, Modi is not given a, a press conference in his entire tenure. But uh, even some of the other spokespersons have been distancing themselves uh, uh, further from uh, a lot of the uh, media that is not really uh, on, on their side or, or is not really Republic TV, for instance. So I think... Uh, Maybe by just exposing these people, allowing them to talk their mind, uh, allowing them to break down how they think about uh, government, how they think about uh, uh, their day-to-day uh, role uh, in the government, uh, is at least a start or is at least a beginning in this entire uh, process. Yes, the food part is the humanizing part and that's where all serious conversation kind of ends. Uh, but I feel it's a beginning, right? And I think yeah. with maybe the two of us, uh, because we may watch more, uh, you know, in-depth stuff on uh, what's happening with uh, policymakers, what they really have to say. Uh, you know, we have uh, other shows like the one with by Shekhar Gupta, like we discussed in the Balakot segment, yeah. uh, where there's a lot more in-depth analysis. I feel this is great for an audience who's just kind of, trying to understand these politicians, trying to understand their opinions and saying that, hey, these guys are normal people and uh, it will be interesting. So I think uh, what's actually interesting is how Sandeesh Bhatia actually asks the tough questions to the citizens on the streets, right? As a part of the Scoop of Unscripted series, while it's all still in jest and humor. But I feel that is a great eye-opener, right? Because those are the people I feel who need to be questioned today. Like all of us need to be questioned as to why are we supporting someone or why are we quiet about something or why are we so vocal or violent about something? I feel there, there is this eye opener, which uh, I I think will be good for uh, us. Yeah, I thought there was this uh, brilliant uncle somewhere in, uh, you know, Connaught Place uh, who just wouldn't stop bashing uh, Modi and his government. And when, uh, you know, Sandeep Bhatia asks, uh, aren't you afraid? Uh, You know, it is like, the government and he's like to many to government rakhi hai. like and that was such a you just <laughs> yeah. don't see Indians saying that anymore, you know. It's either worshipping at the altar of uh, Saint Sant Modi or it's just uh, you know being a being just Congress uh, being a Congress supporter blindly. I thought like you said that was a that was the eye opener for me and yeah. maybe it's unfair to ask uh, a 23, 24-year-old uh, 
really funny new anchor to give us the sort of in-depth polit- uh, policy discussion or the, you know, the horse trading which happens in Lok Sabha. So just to sort of round this off then, I see this uh, triumvirate of uh, independent liberal media, at least on my YouTube feed, and that seems to be the place where most people are now consuming their news. Uh, you know, the need for Facebook and Twitter, I think it, they just they don't even give you the access because YouTube's algorithm has, uh, you know, perfected what you want to see and when you want to see it. I see this triumvirate of uh, independent and liberal-minded media, the print, uh, scroll.in doing a lot, the morning fix, which uh, for a while at least became a fixture in my daily routine. And uh, then obviously Scoop Whoop. So within this, within these three, uh, you know, which uh, space do you see Scoop Whoop uh, capturing and which space do you see uh, the print and scroll inhabiting? Um, I think the print and scroll because of what they are backed by, which is the kind of people uh, who are bringing it to us. Uh, I mean, obviously the scroll uh, for for years has been doing uh, fairly groundbreaking stories on on a host of things, right? Right from culture to the arts to politics uh, and really bringing out stories from the hinterlands, bringing stories of the, you know, the lesser known common man. Um, So I think they come from a fairly serious platform, uh, which is what even the print uh, does with, obviously with Shekhar Gupta at the helm of it. Um, I feel that uh, there is a lot of that media today, right? There's also the wire and uh, th- there is enough content uh, for people who are interested in understanding uh, things in a little depth. Um, but I think this is the part that is missing, right? I mean, uh, AIB, you know, the erstwhile AIB, now we can yeah. say, uh, had, had this show on Hotstar, right? Uh, I forget the name also now, it was that forgettable. But uh, in most parts, they were really, um, you know, I mean, in, in all, in all, honesty and you know fair fairness to them i think there were some good episodes there yeah. uh, but what they were trying to create was this whole you know late night show um, you know kind of a um, episode episodic kind of a show but uh, i feel that in today's uh, the kind of media that we are consuming today uh, even if you look at the the the, the late night show with uh, i mean the daily show with trevor noah uh, the stuff that is doing really well for them is the little snippets on YouTube that they put out because that's what's reaching out to the world because the daily show is not something that's accessible to all of us. Yeah. Uh, and that's how a lot of people are consuming news. Um, that's uh, that's where a lot of uh, opinion is coming out. And uh, I think Scoop Whoop, by balancing out uh, their inherently comic uh, past and into uh, you know telling the news today uh, and also interspersing it with some of these documentaries, are creating a fairly comprehensive uh, kind of a news media outlet. Um, And I think uh, they have the legs uh, if they're able to find uh, more people like Sandeesh Bhatia, because Sandeesh Bhatia is the kind of guy who people will follow, right? I mean, he's got a fairly large Instagram following or a fairly large Twitter following. For someone who's not really driving opinion like maybe a Shekhar Gupta is. And uh, I think if they find a few more people like that, find a few more formats, uh, like that, uh, I think there's still a lot more legs to scoop up because there's already a captive audience there and uh, um, they are someone who can win with a lot of the younger 
um, majority that uh, exists in the country today. It also helps the fact that a lot of it is happening, uh, a lot of the programming is happening in Hindi. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can just hope they continue to do well, continue to do the stuff that they're doing and uh, um, never pander to anybody. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think we'll all be blessed with great content. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we will. This is, again, something we'll... Uh keep touching upon and uh, you know hopefully they put out more content out there which uh, also provokes you and I to have a conversation about it on air uh, so from this then uh, you know further deep dive into the uh, entertainment sector I think yeah. uh, you know we just uh, segue on to our uh, very short next segment yes yes so I thought we can just kind of go for it right I mean uh... Uh, there's this show I know I've been talking to you about it a lot and I just wanted to sneak it in into this uh, section today uh, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from uh, India very quickly uh, for this uh, show on Amazon Prime uh, which um, I think came out about uh, two to three months back uh, and it's uh, called The Giant Beast that is the global economy um, and uh, it's a show hosted by uh, Carl Penn um, I know a uh, completely uh, different kind of universe from uh, all the things that we've been discussing, but I thought just as a part of this section, uh, this is one of the shows that I feel everyone should be watching. Um, it's uh, like the name of the show, you know, the giant beast that is the global economy. Uh, I just never remember the name of the show. And I really think the the, the creators behind the show should think about that because whenever <laughs> I'm talking to somebody and saying there's this really amazing show on Amazon Prime, I just never remember the name. <laughs> I actually have it written down right now because <laughs> I, I would not have remembered it. But uh, Carl Penn makes it fairly uh, memorable as a show. Uh, it, it's very simple. It really talks about the global e- economy. Uh, each episode is about one financial uh, idea, right? Like... Uh, uh, for for instance, the the first episode is uh, how do you launder money? And he actually takes a million dollars all over the world to wow. figure out how to uh, launder it, right? And uh, for all uh, fans of the movie The Big Shot, uh, there's there's a lot of inspiration from the you know the the, the, the small segments that come in the movie where uh, you know celebrities come to kind of explain concepts uh, for uh, lay lay people like me. Uh, the same uh, device has been used in this show uh, and uh, and fairly effectively again. So there's there's an episode on money laundering. There's an episode uh, on the uh, entire economy, uh, the death economy, uh, and how there's so much money to be made, you know, in, in the funeral business. Uh, there is an episode on the rubber industry and how more than petroleum, it's going to be rubber uh, or the lack of it that is uh, going to pretty much bring the... Uh, global economy to a grinding halt. Um, I think it's fascinating stuff. Um, and I think it's super simple and entertaining. And I never would have thought that, you know, talking about the uh, economy uh, would be uh, uh, this entertaining, uh, which kind of brings me back to the person who introduced me to uh, a lot of uh, interesting ideas and, and, and thoughts and obviously uh, books uh, around the economy. And, uh, and that's you. <laughs> uh, and obviously through through your one of your favorite authors uh so um I, I mean i think you should you should see this show and uh, um we haven't really spoken about who the author is so if you want to quickly kind of touch upon that for everyone who's going to start watching the show because considering it's really inspired by a lot of his thinking 
Oh, uh, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest writer that we've seen, you know, across fiction and non-fiction in the past three decades, Michael Lewis, just the way he is able to uh, deal with uh, any subject that he picks up, but then views it uh, through the eyes of this protagonist who in daily life wouldn't really be a protagonist, you know, he'd just be a sideshow, he'd be the ticket collector on a train or he'd be the, you know, the guy driving the truck to make the deliveries. But the fact that he tells a compelling, world-changing, uh, or at least an industry-changing story through their eyes, I think that's what uh, makes it uh, makes him the best writer, uh, you know, bar none for me. And I think uh, before we uh, sort of alienate another section of our uh, fledgling, non-existent audience, uh, I must say that... Uh, Given that we are Indians, we must claim uh, everyone who might be a second generation uh, <laughs> American also as Indian. So I would yeah, like yeah. to point out that Carl Penn's father, uh, his name is Modi as well. And uh, <laughs> uh, we call him Indian. So it wasn't really much of a throwaway or a segue into an entirely different world. Uh, the fact that he's American, we just look past that. So, congrats to us for managing to pull that back into the whole India conversation. Yeah, so because Modi is, I think, the next thing we uh, talk about in our uh, grand election yes. debate and uh, ensuing seven-week-long tamasha. Yeah, yeah. So, onwards then to uh, our next segment. Absolutely. Okay, so we are into uh, our final segment and uh, for everyone who's been waiting for it, uh, I'm so sorry if you felt this for so long and for everyone who said it's coming to an end, uh, I think we've got ourselves some followers uh, there. But um, I think uh, with you um, all across on the other side of the pond uh, in the UK, I just wanted to know um, as we were going to close this in, uh, podcast with uh, our uh, three-part series on the elections. Uh, just what has what has it been like? What what is how, how have you been following the coverage? Uh, have you been missing being here? Um, just overall sentiments uh, from your perspective. Uh, so as for consuming uh, Indian news, uh, it's been the Hindu after they actually bothered to comply with the GDPR because uh, they didn't for the longest time and hence it was blocked here in the UK. But uh, honestly, I don't think, uh, I feel like I'm missing out on anything uh, by not being in India and being a participating uh, citizen in this election because citizens who don't reside in India simply can't vote. Uh, So I really don't think I'm missing out on anything by not being in the midst of it because uh, it just seems to be a shitstorm of all issues which really don't matter to the country. I mean, we don't talk about uh, the economy, we don't talk about growth, we don't talk about jobs and somehow, uh, you know, all the issues... uh, which are being discussed are something which really don't uh, catch my fancy and I think that's the difference from uh, 2014 to now the fact that there was a clearly different narrative being provided by the opposition party to there being honestly nothing now I mean they're competing in uh, 
dole outs they're competing in handouts so i don't think uh, this election is as exciting for me as the previous one yeah i com- completely agree with you i mean sitting here it's it's quite disappointing every day to hear some of the coverage around the elections I suddenly realize just the gravity of the fact that this elections uh, goes on for nearly about a month and a half you know i i somehow feel like all previous elections used to get over in just a week but this feels like it's dragging on uh, just some of the news coming out of uh, both parties i mean i i don't want to give too much time to the fact that uh, you know there is uh, um uh, you know pragya sadvi thakur now uh, contesting uh, from bhopal for bjp uh, you know i mean just it's very difficult to even digest some of this news right it's just so hard to understand why some of these things are happening uh there is a huge uh, amount of uh, uh you know uh, versions of voter fraud and uh the vv pat not working in certain parts of the country in uh, certain phases of the elections it just feels like a lot of the conversation like you're saying has nothing to do with uh, promises that uh, you know the parties are supposed to make uh, t- uh to us as uh, citizens what what is so broken this time i mean uh, this is supposed to be um modi's return uh, this is supposed to be rahul gandhi's ascendancy uh, this is supposed to be a, a third front's uh, potential uh, claim to the you know rajgaddi why is it why is it so uh, you know meaningless what what's what's going wrong this time i think it's just so terribly hard to put your finger on it because it just seems to have uh, descended and spiraled out of control essentially for anyone who wants to control the narrative build a narrative it has just seemed beyond them and i don't know i mean secretly i think that the fact that the central narrative is so broken people will actually give more consideration to their own assembly elections i know they've always been very important uh, you know to the indian people uh, but i think that the assembly elections the state elections assume even more importance if uh, the center is in this uh, state of dysfunction because it is slightly uh, despairing to be a part of a so called democracy but where every single voice is being drowned out i mean uh, it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or you're on the right there's just no space to really have a meaningful debate but i think people much older than uh, you and i would be able to tell us that uh, every 20 years or so they do feel the same you know with the emergency and then with uh, three different governments in uh, 90 days but i think for uh, most of the electorate this just seems uh, really new the fact that uh, we just can't seem to pin down and hold a single narrative every single day a new front is being opened up either it's the uh, rafael scam or it is voter fraud or it is voter registration so no one really knows what is the core issue that this uh, election is being fought on yeah and from from any side and then that's what is uh, you know so disheartening like even when both the parties release their manifestos it was just a whole bunch of vultures from all over the place tearing it apart no one really breaking down and understanding if there's any sense to it and i think there's just generally a sense of disillusionment towards 
so-called election manifestos, right? Because I think uh, the media did a good job of constantly reminding us of all the promises that was made by the Modi government. Uh, I think this is the first uh, or the second of uh, series of elections that have been fought in truly social media era. So I think it's it's also just this overcrowding of information that we aren't used to, which is why nothing seems to be coming into focus. Uh, but what 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 should we kind of uh, expect? I mean, the third uh, we are somewhere in the third phase of uh, polling right now. I mean, we will surely do one more uh, segment uh, before the results and then one more after the results. But uh, you know, just as a handover to the next episode, what what are we to kind of look forward to? Is there something that we should be trying to listen to? Uh, should we, uh, as uh, I mean, a lot of us have already uh, voted. I just voted last week. Um, should we be uh, in any way um, listening to a certain kind of media outlet, uh, listening to a certain kind of news uh, to really understand what's going on? Uh, I would say I think from now till uh, May twenty third, I think radio silence would be the best thing to do because <laughs> there doesn't seem to be uh, any coherent thought or any coherent narrative uh, being talked about. But from the uh, standpoint of the results, I think what would be really interesting is to see whether the BJP has made inroads in uh, new territories. And from my point of view, why that's so important and why the BJP have uh, positioned themselves in a way, uh, in a space where they want to make inroads into new territories is so they can, uh, you know, truly become a national party. Back in 2014, they needed the support support of the TDP or maybe the Shiv Sena, but they've really uh, not cared much about uh, humoring their allies since. Because I think in the long run, uh, the big prize at the uh, end of this game for them is a truly pan-national presence. So they wouldn't care as much if, uh, you know, they lose a few seats in the Hindi heartland. Their success rate there will definitely go down. It would be next to impossible to match the uh, results of 2014. But I think what would, uh, that is the one thing that I would really look out for. Uh, And uh, I I don't think a federal front uh, will really emerge or will be a It's just a pipe dream, but uh, I think the sort of longer term implications of what these uh, four or five years have uh, given us, I think that would be really interesting, at least from a political viewpoint, because I really don't see there being any uh, tough decisions on the uh, economy or economy being taken. Yeah, for sure. And especially considering uh, even if, you know, the BJP or or at least the NDR to come back into power, there will be uh, alliances they'll need to make which they're not familiar with, you know, to make it happen. Uh, so, um, yeah, what what that will do to uh, policy making from there will be quite interesting. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so yeah, we'll, we'll carry this uh, over to uh, our next podcast and hopefully uh, by then, um, you know, between the opinion makers in this country and, you know, just from what we are observing, uh, uh, it will be interesting to see if anything new has come out or there's just going to be the same old drivel of random people. By the way, Sunny Diol has recently joined the BJP. So, oh, wow. we might just, that's, 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 that's all we might have to report uh, by the next uh, 
uh, podcast but also it will be interesting to uh, hear if if you know we are able to put some of this together as to what some of the international media is talking about the elections uh, i know you uh, the uk is having its own challenges right now and uh, maybe you might touch upon that in the next podcast but just what some of the media how do they report the indian elections would be quite interesting when we kind of discuss this the next yeah, time it definitely would be if the uk media were actually doing it because there is just uh, <laughs> nothing you know, there is just one thing that uh, we talk about here but yeah, yeah definitely i mean we will uh, we should again sit down and pontificate across the pond and just see what the world has to say about uh, our elections yeah that that sounds great so until the uh, Uh, next episode which we uh, promise to bring to all of you very soon uh that's uh, that's me signing off uh, from bangalore and that's me signing off from london and uh, thanks a lot guys uh good morning good afternoon and good night <laughs> to whenever you're listening to this. oh yeah of course we have a global audience so if they're <laughs> listening to it live <laughs> all right cool catch you soon with uh, until the next episode then yeah sure